Welcome to 21. I'm Drew Lasker. I'm a family man, professional athlete, and business owner of Train Harder 21 and 21 Media. Yvonne Harris and I have teamed up and created this podcast to explore the life lessons that come along with being an athlete. Y21 is my jersey number and a key part to my great fortune and career. So it seems fitting for this podcast. Hi, I'm Yvonne Harris. I'm a proud boy mom and an advocate for efforts that improve the lives of women and children. Experiencing success as an athlete or in any facet of life does not happen by accident. There must be clarity, intention, and the willingness to pivot. Our guests on 21 share their journeys in ways that cause you to reflect, assess, and then take action. We are so thankful for the stories shared on this podcast because Drew and I know their wisdom shortens someone else's path to success. Enjoy this episode of 21. Welcome back to another episode of 21 and buckle yourselves up today for a wealth of experience as today's guest has volunteered most of his life for many organizations out there. And he served 35 years for ExxonMobil. Today, we welcome Jesse Tyson, retired president and CEO of the National Black NBA Association. Jesse, welcome to 21. Thank you. Well, we're honored to have you on our show today. But before we dive into your story, we're going to break the ice a little bit with a game we call 21 Questions with 21. So, Jesse, we're just going to throw you in the hot seat. Yvonne and I are going to fire some questions to you, and I don't even want you to think about it. I want you to answer the first thing that comes to your mind. All right. You ready to go? I, yep. Why not? <laughs> Let's do it. All right. Waterburger or In-N-Out? Waterburger. Nike or Adidas? Adidas. Beer or tequila? Tequila. Beach or mountains? Beach. Tupac or Biggie? Tupac. Jordan or LeBron? LeBron. Texans or Cowboys? Cowboys. Yuck. Popeyes or Chick-fil-A? Chick-fil-A. Las Vegas or Miami? Miami. IHOP or Waffle House? IHOP. East Coast or West Coast? West Coast. Early bird or night owl? Early bird. Grilled or fried? Since my wife's not listening, fried. Car or truck? Car. Bluebell or Haagen-Dazs? Bluebell. Coke or Pepsi? Pepsi. Summer or winter? Summer. Xbox or PlayStation? Xbox. Dishes or laundry? Laundry. City or country? Country. And finally, after a long week when you want an opportunity to unwind, you going with the club or house party? House party. And Jesse, you are now off the hot seat. Drew, he went against the grain on a couple of those questions. Yeah, I hope his wife isn't listening, especially to that fried <laughs> question and that, and, that, and that blue bell as well, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. 
But, but before we dive deep, Jesse, why don't you just give us a little bit of background about yourself? Okay. Um, well, I, I grew up in the rural segregated South, a uh, little town called Jackson, Tennessee. And I grew up as a sharecropper. Um, and you guys can Google that later since you're so young, you don't know what that is. But I was raised by my grandparents and we stayed on a white family's farm in an exchange for a place to live on the farm. We harvest their crop, uh, which was cotton. And so that was my early childhood experience. Uh, I grew up in West Tennessee, about 60 miles out of Memphis. And so, you know, when Dr. King was, was, was assassinated, you know, it was, it was close to me, you know, not just geographically, but because of the proximity, um, you know, I kind of glued myself to the television and kind of watched the coverage, you know, round the clock when I could. Uh, and this predated the fact that TV news today is kind of round the clock. I had planned to go off to college and uh, my grandfather died my senior year in high school. And so I ended up going to college in my hometown, uh, which was Lane College. And um, in preparation for, for Lane, uh, for college in general, um, you know, my grandmother kind of instilled some things in me as a, as a child about the importance of education. Um, and uh, so I kind of went into college with, with a frame of mind that was somewhat different than some of the, the young folk that I graduated from high school with. Um, but, um, but, but that's kind of in a nutshell, my, 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 my early years. Um, I went off to college. I ended up going to West Africa between undergrad and grad school where I did an internship with the U.S. State Department. And I spent six months in Dakar, Senegal, and uh, and that for a country boy was kind of the turning point for me where I coming out of that experience had to decide what am I going to do with my life? You know, I've gone from the cotton fields to to the State Department and in, in, in to West Africa. What's next? I mean, I, I, to go back to where I, I came from just seemed to have been a total waste of the experience. So, so I applied to graduate school and I was accepted to Ohio State. And so I ended up getting my MBA from the Ohio State University. Um, and while there, I, um, uh, I hired on with ExxonMobil. Um, and then I did 35 years uh, with them uh, after leaving graduate school. So let's probe a little bit, Jesse. In high school, um, did you have any interest in sports or any extracurricular, or was it just strictly academics for you? I played basketball uh, in high school, but be, but academics was my, my number one priority, uh, primarily because it was my grandmother's number one priority. Um, and she always said, you know, unless you think you have the talent to go off and make some money at this sport, then academics must always be your number one priority. But, but I enjoyed the academic part of the high school experience as well. Um, but, but I did play basketball. And you're known throughout the community for your leadership. Were there things about basketball and being on the basketball team that helped to shape you into the leader that you are today? Well, I mean, I think there are some things that are very similar to sports uh, as well as a business career. 
uh, as well as just, you know, life in general. I mean, I think the first thing for me was the notion that you have to be prepared um, in regards of, of what your pursuit is. Uh, being ready um, is a requirement. And to be ready, you've got to be willing to put in the work. And so for me, probably one of the biggest similarities was just the need to have to put in the work uh, if you really wanted to get beyond, you know, what I would call entry level. Um, and, and even in putting in the work, um, I mean, what were your, your competitive spirit like? Uh, I mean, did you really have the drive? Um, and, and for me, uh, I was always driven. Um, I was probably more driven in the classroom than I was um, on the basketball court. Um, but even then, knowing that I was, I was competing with individuals who had uh, better skills than I did. Uh, in fact, sometimes because of that, that kind of raised my level of, of competitiveness. Um, but, uh, but just the notion of having to be competitive to get beyond uh, where I was was also important. And, and the other one is, is, is managing risk. Um, you know, as, as, a, as a high school athlete, you know, when you're off the court, there are a whole lot of things to get into. And, and, and as a student, you know, once you were no longer in the classroom, there were things to get into. And so, so the real issue was, I mean, to avoid some of those things that you can get into from tripping you up um, and taking you out of your game, regardless of what your game might be, um, you make the wrong move or the wrong step, um, then you now all of a sudden you're, you're playing catch up. And in many cases, you don't play catch up. Uh, you just get taken out of the game. Right. Speaking of basketball and you attended Lane College, which is an HBCU and HBCUs have been in the media over the past year and in regards to athletics, because traditionally uh, high ranking players don't normally attend those schools. They, they attend the Ohio States. Uh, right. But as we look, you know, Deion Sanders, who's a four star football player, his son has just signed on to an HBCU and also a five star basketball player, which has never been done before. So as you see this transition happening, what does that mean for you? Well, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see this transition happening. Um, it, it's, 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 it's long overdue um, because in order for the HBCU world to be competitive um, at any level, even at the academic level, um, it does require that they have the ability to attract, uh, you know, the, 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 the high quality athletes uh, or the high quality students. Because if, if you go back and think about it, uh, there was a time where these students would go to HBCUs. It wasn't until it became a lot more lucrative for them to go to the bigger schools that that transition started to happen. So I, I, I'm pleased to see um, that we've kind of gone full circle. Um, I, will, I will say, though, that that comes with some challenges as well. Um, because you know now that the the, the marquee athlete or the five star athlete is at the HBCU, the experience has to match uh, that athlete's expectations. <clears throat> Otherwise, uh, you run the risk of the non HBCUs continue to whisper uh, in their ear uh, within the rules uh, that uh, hey you know this is what we could do for you if you're not totally happy where you are. So. So there are some challenges that will come 
with that. Uh, I, I trust our institutions are prepared for that challenge, uh, but this is could be the beginning of something big to allow them to become just as competitive in terms of attracting marquee and five-star athletes as the non-HBCUs. If we can, Jesse, I'd love to go back to your experience um, that you had in West Africa in Senegal. What advice do you give young people today about expanding their horizons and maybe traveling um, overseas or to other countries? Is that something you advocate? I, I do. Uh, I actually advocate that for adults in the U.S. as well. Uh, Agreed. <laughs> um, but yes, I mean, you think about the Europeans and you, when you graduate from high school in, in Europe, you, you grab a backpack and they give you a few few dollars in your pocket, not a lot of dollars. And, and you kind of go off for a few weeks just to explore uh, the continent before you actually get into uh, life after high school in college or whatever you decide to pursue. Um, so, so for me, having experienced it, um, I advocated for everybody. Uh, I think especially for, for black students, uh, especially those who come from a background similar to mine, it opens your eyes to a whole nother world. It, you, you start to see a perspective of life that you would never see if you had stayed in your, your local community. Um, and so when I, went to, uh, when I went to the State Department to do the, the briefing uh, before we ended up going over to um, to Senegal, that was an eye opener. You know, for for a little high school um, you know, country kid coming out of Jackson, Tennessee, to be in the State Department, um, and uh, and then from there on to, uh, to to West Africa, and that was my first flight, by the way, um, that whole experience. So uh, so my whole world was changing at the speed of light, um, and and I was the only someone in my my family who was pretty excited about it. They all saw it as, oh my God, you know, we're never going to see see this guy again. Um, but yeah, it, that experience in in Senegal was was eye opening for me. Uh, it was broadening for me. I did everything that the people in the U.S. Embassy did not want to do. That you know, give it to the intern. The intern will do anything, right? Um, and and I would have said, yeah, bring it on. Um, because it was about exposure for me. Um, and, and for, again, for someone with my background, it just started to open the world up and really caused me to start thinking about life after. Uh, what was I going to do? And was I going to go back to my hometown, get a job at the mill, um, and maybe make shift supervisor? Um, or was I really, really ready to transition to something that uh, could be transformative in terms of change in the trajectory of my, my family for years to come. Everything that you say about traveling is exactly right. And here in the UK, they call it a gap year. So most kids, once they graduate high school, they go off to travel Australia or any mm -hmm. or another country for a year. And I wish it was something that we would do more in the States because I actually grew up in Germany for four years. So I was born in, in Texas, but I grew up in Germany and those were my first memories are. And when I moved back to the States when I was almost nine years old, I knew right away that I was different. Like my thought mm -hmm. process was different. And I felt like, you know, that experience helped me gain an open mind to the world. And it definitely shaped me. Yeah, now I was getting ready to say, you know, 
you probably had a worldview of, of issues, whereas the people you were talking to here would have a very microscopic view of that issue. Um, and, and, and I actually found that there were times where the, you know, they would rush to get through that conversation because they, I didn't have a whole lot to say that they wanted to hear um, because I was coming from a whole different perspective than they were. But, but that's clearly one of the, the things that I really value about the European um, um, environment where that's a priority. It's a priority for you to expand your world at that age. It helps you deal with issues that you will likely face later on. So talk to us about um, your discipline, your schedule, your regimen in college, Jesse. Um, so advice to college students. And then you use that term internship. Mm -hmm. So um, it seems like your internship was really transformative in terms of getting you set in the direction you wanted to go. But I still don't think as many college students today are taking advantage of internship opportunities, especially student athletes. Right, right. No, I, I think you're right. Um, the first part of your question about your know, life uh, in college for me, you know, when I started uh, undergrad, um, and it was the same in graduate school as well, you know, coming out of high school, you know, I came out whether it's sports or academics, you know, I, I consider myself, you know, you know, a first round draft choice um, coming out of high school. Well, you know, I get to college. Everybody's a first round draft choice, you know, so it was like, whoa, <laughs> you know, while I may have been an A student in, 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 in one subject, everybody else was an A student. And so what did I have to do to differentiate myself was the question I asked myself. Um, and so, so I, I, I came into the experience knowing that life in college uh, was going to be at a pace that was much faster. Uh, than the pace that I ran at uh, when I was uh, when I was in school, um, and so I, you know, I kind of calibrated my thinking around the fact that the pace was going to be much faster. Uh, I calibrated my thinking around the level of competition um, was going to be higher, whether it's in, in the classroom or or not. Um, and so I knew I had to bring my A game, uh, otherwise, you know, I was just going to be just an average guy. Um, now, what helped me was the fact that in the HBCU, HBCU community, um, they're going to they go out of their way to make sure that the experience uh, is what it should be. And so there were there were there were professors who took me under their wings uh, to uh, to help guide me. Um, and not all of those professors looked like me. You know, I had a professor from Pakistan. Who, um, who was the one who asked me to apply for the internship with the U.S. State Department. And I will tell you, I told him no. Um, I told him that's for city boys, not for country boys like me. And he said, well, it's, it's for anyone. If you're willing to put, put in the work, uh, you can do it. And, then, and I said no. Um, and, and so he hounded me and I kept saying no. And so one day after class, he, he taught me statistics. Uh, he asked me to stay after class, and I said, you know, what now? And um, when everyone else was gone, <clears throat> he went into his briefcase, he took a pen out, he took a file out, and he opened the file, and he said, I filled out the application for you, all you have to do is sign. And I said, you know, if this is all it's going to take to get this guy off my case, fine. 
I signed it, never told anyone about it. And, and it wasn't until the FBI knocked on my grandmother's door and uh, that I said, oops, uh, I guess I probably should have told her. And, but you know, the rest is history. I was accepted into the program. And, uh, but again, it was that nurturing that you get in the HBCU community that really brought that uh, forward, uh, that allowed me to apply for it. Um, but you, you also are very correct in that, you know, not everyone will take the advantage of internships. Um, and, and, you know, there are internships that are actually uh, ones where they don't pay any money. Uh, they just, but they, but they give you experience. And so, um, uh, so I would encourage all students who have the opportunity to apply for an internship, but also I, I'm beginning to see more of the universities and the colleges promoting internships uh, for students as well. And so, uh, so that's encouraging because, because I think that in itself will help narrow the gap uh, between those who are prepared uh, for greatness when they get out of college than those who, uh, who currently, uh, uh, who may not uh, pursue those experiences. So let's fast forward a little bit, Jesse. You went to West Africa, you came back to the States, were accepted at the Ohio State University. You um, achieved your MBA, you were able to attain that. And then talk to us about your career journey and how you landed at ExxonMobil and just your thought process and who were your mentors and coaches during that season? Well. When I was at Ohio State, um, Exxon and many of the other uh, Fortune 500 companies would come on campus to recruit. Um, and I ended up um, getting a job offer from Exxon uh, at the time before the merger. Uh, and, I, and I also received a job offer from P&G. <clears throat> and so I'm sitting there just racking my brain trying to figure out which one of these do I accept, you know, and, and, and I'm getting all stressed out over it. And so I went to talk to one of my professors and, uh, and, and I said, Roger, you know, I, I have these two offers. I don't know what to do. This is driving me nuts. And he, he looked at it and he said, well, what's your problem? He said, you have the, the issue that every student here wish they had, you know, you have two blue chippers uh, who made you a job offer. And, and, and so, um, so I ended up choosing ExxonMobil, Exxon at the time, primarily because of the industry was an industry that I was intrigued by about, but I also knew energy was gonna be a part of our lives forever. Um, and the, the P&G uh, offer that was in their Folgers division uh, in Muncie, Indiana at the time. And, um, and so I chose Exxon uh, and uh, I went off to start working for them. Never thought I was work 35 years with the same company. Uh, in fact, my kids tell me now that's kind of a dinosaur model. Um, but it worked for me because in that 35 years, I think I had 16 different assignments. And so every couple of years I was changing roles. And, and so it was almost like working for different companies because you know, we were the largest company in the world at the time. Um, and so if you have 16 different assignments, um, you know, it, it, it was a different experience uh, each time. Um, and so um, 
And so I enjoyed it. Uh, and about halfway in my career, I started to get the itch to go international. Um, and, um, and so I started to pursue the possibilities of what it would take for me to get an international opportunity. And, and so I started to have conversations with, with individuals who were already in the international business. Um, and in 1995, I got an opportunity to move from Houston to New Jersey to work for Exxon International in 95. And so between 1995 and 2000, you know, I spent probably half of my time outside of the United States. And then in 2000, uh, Exxon and Mobile merged together. Um, and then the last, from 2000 to the end of my career, everything was international, with the last assignment being in Brussels, Belgium as the global aviation director. Um, and then I retired in 2011 and moved back to the US. Um, but that whole corporate experience for me, um, you, you, when I think about the comparison of that experience to, to, to the athletics, you know, in terms of an athlete going to the NBA or the NFL uh, or playing you know, professional golf. <clears throat> the things that, that, that come to mind that are similar is you gotta bring your A game every day, which means you have to be prepared. Uh, and we talked earlier about putting in the work. Um, it, it, it also required teamwork, uh, regardless of how smart I thought I was, I couldn't get everything done that I needed to get done uh, without um, the assistance of others. So, so I had to project myself as a team player in order to get others to want to assist me to accomplish some things that I was trying to get done. Um, I had to be competitive. Uh, I don't care how nice of a guy you are. Um, if you're not competitive, if you don't bring what's required, you're just another nice guy. Um, and so I knew I had to put in the work to be competitive. Um, and, and being competitive required that, you know, maybe I had to get up earlier um, than others. I may have to stay longer than others, especially if I, I was moving into an area that I was less familiar with. Uh, it required more effort than maybe uh, it did for others. Um, I also realized that even though I thought I was pretty good at what I did, uh, I needed a, a mentor or a sponsor to help guide me through this maze of the largest corporation in the world um, and, to, and to help me avoid some pitfalls that, that I know others uh, were not able to avoid. Um, and, um, and, and, and we talked earlier about managing risk. Um, you know, you, the easiest thing to do if you're a basketball player is to, to shoot layups. Uh, sometimes you have to take a three. Um, and, and, and I got to a point where I knew I was gonna have to take some three pointers uh, in order to get to where I needed to get to. Now I had to be ready for that um, and, uh, and hopefully I was, and I, I think I did all right. I think my percentage were, was pretty high. Um, but, but, but there comes a time where you have to take risk, uh, to get to where you want to get to. Um, and the, and the last thing I'll say in this regard is, is I had to also manage my own brand. Um, just like any corporation, every individual has his or her own brand. Um, and, 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 and I had to nourish my brand the same as a corporation does with their brand. I couldn't tarnish that brand. 
Uh, I couldn't do things, you know, that were going to get in the way of me progressing. And if you share any of this with any of the young folks out there, part of managing that brand is also managing your social media network uh, in terms of what you put out there uh, and who you are seeing engaging with. Um, now, early in my career, you know, social media wasn't an issue, but this whole notion of managing the brand and, and taking risk was, uh, is just take, taking on a different form today than it did, you know, 20 something years ago. I love the basketball analogies because when you really look at it, there's so many parallels between corporate America and an athlete. And for yourself, if I take you back to 1976 and I, you know, tell you as a young man, hey, one day you're going to be president of Inter-Americas and you're going to be the global aviation director. And we're talking about a time where there was a glass ceiling. Did you think that was possible at that time? Well, I, I, I did. Um, I was I was naive enough to believe there was not a whole lot that I couldn't do um, if I put in the work. Um, now, I wasn't naive to believe that I could just put in the work and things would happen. I knew that in the corporate setting, um, you know, there is a, a political component of it and you had to project uh, yourself as being a leader. Uh, you couldn't just come to work, put your head down and do your job. Um, anyone could do that. Um, but if you really were gonna to get to the bigger roles, I knew I had to show them that uh, I could manage people. Um, I, I knew I had to demonstrate that I could manage people across the globe, not just in the United States of America. Uh, I had to demonstrate that I could manage our relationships in the US that may have crossed racial lines um, and be comfortable in that environment. Um, so yes, I was taught early on that there was not a whole lot that I couldn't do. Um, I actually bought into most of that. Um, and, and, and so when I was given the opportunity, I would always pause and reflect back on what was I told that I had to bring in order to move up. Um, and I knew there were some things I had to give up to move up sometimes. And, um, and so, but, but yeah, I had the confidence. Uh, I didn't always have that confidence, but I built the confidence over time to say, yes, when that opportunity comes, I'm gonna be ready for it. Um, and I'm gonna surround myself with the right people to help me continue to move forward. Um, and, uh, and, and I did, I mean, I had a fairly diverse network of mentors, uh, but I also had a sponsor. Uh, and, and, and the difference between a sponsor and a mentor, that sponsor takes a personal interest in, in, in shepherding your career forward um, and, and, and it's, it's, it's a little bit more engaging than just a mentor. Um, and I know over the course of my years, uh, in, in with ExxonMobil, I had both, um, and, um, and I didn't get to where I, I, I ultimately got to just on my own. There were others who engaged in my, in my rural, um, and, and there were times where they would pull my coattail and say, Hey, you know, uh, you may want to rethink this approach or this strategy um, because there are some pitfalls there. And, and I listened. Uh, I never got to a point where <clears throat> I was the smartest guy in the room. In fact, when I thought I was the smartest guy in the room, I always told myself I was in the wrong room 
because there was nothing for me to learn if I was the smartest person in the room. Yeah, we talk about that a lot on here about, you know, seeking out mentors. And that's a term that I haven't heard in the corporate world, a, a sponsor. So, but for you, after you finished with ExxonMobil, you became the president and CEO of the National Black MBA Association. And mm -hmm. what attracted you to, to this type of work? Well, um, the, the one thing my, my grandmother always told me, there, there were two things she told me. She said, one, the, the things that, that I require of you are fairly simple. Uh, I, I need you to be a good person, a good student, and I don't want you to embarrass the family. All right. And so those were fairly simple things. Um, but she also told me that um, there were three phases of life that I also needed to kind of focus on. One was the learning phase. The second was the earning phase. And the third was the returning phase. And so the learning phase was, was the whole educational thing. Um, the earning phase was just, you know, get into a corporation or own your own business um, and earn enough income that you can not only change the trajectory of your family, but also uh, get positioned to give back. And so the whole Black MBA thing is just part of my journey uh, to give back to a community that gave so much to me. Um, and, and so when I retired and they asked me if I would come on board to become the interim CEO, uh, it was a six month contract uh, that lasted five years. Uh, and, but, uh, but it was, it was we, we knew we were, good, we were doing good work uh, around trying to help high school students get prepared for college and to help college students get prepared for either graduate school or corporate, the corporate world, or if they wanted to go into business for themselves, what was the path to entrepreneurship like uh, relative to a path to the corporate world? So, so giving back is just part of the contract. And it's just, I mean, it's, it's, as, it's as simple as what I would do for one of my own children, because um, that's what I was taught um, from early on. Um, and I've seen what happens when you, when you uh, inject yourself into the life of, of, a, of a child or a kid who's trying to do better, but just had so, many, so much baggage back home. So when they go off to school, um, they can't totally focus because they're getting phone calls every other day about issues back home. Um, and in, in some cases, there's no money to help. And so my wife and I have kind of dedicated ourselves to try to um, provide resources. We have an endowment um, at my undergrad school um, in, in honor of my grandmother. Um, we have an endowment at Ohio State in honor of the guy who made it possible for me to go there. Uh, and we also have one at Spelman. Um, neither of us went to Spelman, but you know, my wife is the oldest of three uh, daughters um, and we have three daughters. So we figured we'd do something at an all girls school. What do you think is the current value proposition of an advanced degree? Do you still advocate for a five-year degree or an MBA or do you think the landscape has changed a little bit? I think there is still value uh, in the advanced degree, especially for uh, students of color. Um, I think it, it further prepares them 
uh, and gives them a, a competitive tool um, that they can use that others can't use against them if they don't have it. Um, and, and so I, I, I've looked at some data as well. If you look at the, the starting pay for an undergrad student relative to the, the average starting pay for a person with an advanced degree, it's, it's, it's almost double if you have the, um, the MBA. Um, now it, it comes with two, two and a half years of work um, and you have to find a way to pay for it. Um, but I, I do believe the advanced degree is still valuable. Um, and I still encourage individuals to, uh, to pursue it. Now, the difference today relative to when I was in school is for me to go from undergrad to grad school was fine. Uh, I think there's more value today to have one to two years of work experience in between. And the reason for that is when you go to grad school, you know, the experience is so richer when you're talking about real world issues and problems that you faced at work versus all theory. Um, it, it's not that going directly from undergrad to grad school is of no value. I just think having some work experience in between just enhances the experience for you. And how would this translate, Justy, for student athletes? So when you think of eligibility and how long they can stay in school, is the MBA something they should pursue maybe later down the road or is there a way to do both or maybe get a five-year degree? Yeah, I, I think it depends on what the athlete wants to do post-planned um, sports. Uh, and I hope all of them will have a plan for life after, <clears throat> because life after means they're in their late 20s, or early 30s. Um, it's not like they're in their late 50s, or early 60s. So they have a lot of runtime and they really need something meaningful for them to do uh, such that, you know, they, they, it, it's, it's, a, it's a, an experience that they bring to society, but also it's something that they do for themselves um, that they can feel good about. Um, and, and so um, I know of, of athletes who have gone back to graduate school. Most of them would have gone back after their plan days were over. But, it, it, but that's not a bad thing because they're still, in some cases, they're still in their 20s. Um, and so, but, I, but you, you can never learn too much. And so, yes, I, I, I do believe going back uh, has merit. Uh, now there are cases obviously where it may not just depending on the, the individual circumstance, but I think uh, as a general rule uh, for the athlete to go back to school is it's important. We talked about the parallels between the athlete and you know the work in the corporate world. What characteristic traits do you think student athletes uh, possess that attract corporate leaders? Well, clearly uh, a competitive spirit um, is one. Um, and for the most part, I think they would have demonstrated that they are team players. <clears throat> Even if you're in a, in a sport that's considered an individual sport, there is a team around you somewhere. Um, and both being a team player and competitive are two traits that uh, are required 
to be competitive in the corporate world. Um, the, the, the willingness to put in the work, um, clearly as an athlete, you either, if you don't, it's gonna be obvious, obvious that you didn't, um, but that's also a must in the corporate world as well. Um, if you really want to differentiate yourself from the rest of the pack. Um, and, um, uh, and I think the other is this, this whole notion of how do you project yourself? Um, and what's your self image like? And how, how is that consistent with the brand of the company that you're actually uh, gonna be working for? So when I talked earlier about, you know, about managing uh, your personal brand, Corporations do uh, look at that because you know the first thing they're going to do before they hire you is go look at your social media page, um, and uh, so this whole notion of brand management is not just a corporate thing; it is as much an individual thing uh, as well. Jesse, 2020 has been a year like um, many of us haven't experienced previously. And in light of the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, what do you think of the social justice movement in the country? And I know that you are on daily calls with business leaders. What advice are you giving corporations about their role during this time and what they should be saying? Well, I mean, I think the first thing is we can't become desensitized to what we're saying. Uh, and, 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 and we have to depoliticize the issue. And, and, and too often um, we see politics creep in the middle of this thing and then politics be, become the, 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 the topic of the conversation versus addressing the real issue. And so one of the things that we talk a lot about is, is this take politics off the table um, because there's a 50-50 chance that you're gonna be in one party and I'm gonna be in the other. Um, so let's not let that get in the way. Uh, I think the, the, the second is to, is to have real conversation about where we are in this country around race. Um, uh, we have some problems. Um, and those problems are not just confined to the black community, but they're largely confined to the black community. Um, and, and we who know better uh, have to help develop solutions to the problem, which means that we have to call out uh, uh, individuals or companies who are on the wrong side of the issue. Um, but we also have to be there to help those companies or individuals who are asking for help. Um, one would think today people would say, well, I know what it takes to solve the issue. Uh, and so why are they asking for help? The reality is, not everyone totally understand the issue. Um, and not all black folk understand the issue. Um, we understand what's happening in our little microscopic world, but, but we need to think a lot broader than that um, and, 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 and look at the impact this is having on our, on our society in general. Um, so yes, there's a lot of conversation going on with the corporate world about what they need to do and the commitments they need to make and the acceptance of the fact that they created some of the issues. Um, this, this is not a new problem. Um, I mean, we've been at this thing for a long, long time and, and a lot of quote, smart people have been trying to come up with solutions. 
but those solutions were pretty much confined to a culture that they had built for years that they were trying to protect, or they were just trying to incrementalize this into that culture. Well, you can't. Um, you have to look at it and call it what it is. I mean, racism is racism. Um, being anti-black is being anti-black and you can't sugarcoat that um, in any way. Now, the what I was impressed with is the age profile and the diversity of the folk who you saw out there protesting um, this, this summer. Um, because for me, the message there is not black folk aren't the only ones who are just sick and tired of being sick and tired. Um, there are some young folks out there like you all who are also uh, sick and tired of being sick and tired. They saw this country for who we truly are and they said, this is not the country that I want to grow up in uh, unless we can fix some of these issues. So I, I am encouraged by what I saw in terms of the diversity and the age profile of those out there uh, protesting. Um, I'm also encouraged, you know, my youngest daughter um, actually penned an open letter to the CEO of her company. Um, and uh, it is, it, and it, he ended up forwarding it on to everybody in, their, <laughs> in the company. Um, and it has really led to some, some things that they have committed to publicly that um, uh, that will be game changing. And, and so so I do believe the, the, the fact that people are speaking out uh, is really, really helping. Um, and, and I think the other thing that's important, there are people who are coming who are not of color who have said, listen, I, I, I don't know what the, what the solution is. <clears throat> I live in this world. I need some help. Can we have some conversation? So um, I've had personal conversations with neighbors, um, and we've talked about white privilege. Um, uh, and we've talked about a lot of things that in their world they never thought of. Uh, or even when they heard about it, they took exception to it. Um, you know, in fact, you know, I've, I've had some conversations with folk who take exception to the fact that they have white privilege. Um, and it doesn't cause us to be combative. It just caused us to have a, a, a deeper conversation about what it means. Um, doesn't mean you necessarily are a bad person. You just have to accept the fact that it's, it's real. I mean, the lady who called the police in the park, um, she was a classic example and she knew exactly what white privilege would do for her. Um, and so it's, 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 so it's been an education across the spectrum um, but I, 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 I've seen some improvement. I, I do caution us though, that this is a marathon and not a sprint. Right? Um, and this issue won't go away overnight and it's gonna require constant pressure and attention. But I do think we're in a much better place today than we were a few months ago because we have now looked it in the face and we are, are acknowledging the fact that as a nation, we have a problem. I know you're proud of your daughter. I am, I am, uh, very much so. Um, and, uh, um, and and we, in fact, she, she, she came in a few days ago from Chicago and, um, and we, you know, we still talk about that. Um, and she actually has created her own network 
of, of individuals outside of work where they continue to have that dialogue. And, and so she's growing, um, you know, her generation is impatient. Uh, so part of our dialogue is to throttle it down just a bit. Uh, you're not gonna solve world hunger tomorrow. Uh, give it a couple of days, um, but I am. Uh, I mean, she clearly uh, saw something or listened and heard something that we had taught her over the years. Um, and she just felt uh, the time was right and she was courageous enough to step out there and she did it the right way. I mean, it wasn't uh, like she was um, being uh, antagonistic, but she did it the right way. It was fact-based. Um, and I think her company appreciated her doing it. Totally agree with you as far as like how the surprise and encouragement from my own end was the diversity of the protesters. I wasn't expecting that. So that encouraged me moving forward and there's this notion within being an athlete, you know, yep, I'm sure if you heard this term, shut up and dribble. So mm -hmm. how do you think professional sports leagues handled the social issues, uh, sp specifically the NBA, just because they were probably the most outspoken? Are you pretty satisfied with how they handled it? Or do you think there could have been different ways that they addressed it? Well, I mean, I, I, there can always be different ways, and, and, and I don't want to be critical of, of any league for how they handle it. I, I think the fact that they dealt with it um, was, was, was great. Uh, I was impressed with um, the manner in which they stepped out. Um, I actually had a conversation with the wife of one of the, uh, the, the NBA teams as president uh, around some things that she was um, – uh, pushing and that he would support and the team would support. Um, uh, and I'm impressed with the fact that they they don't think they're done yet. Um, so it wasn't like a one and done for them. Um, and so I think, I think all the, all the leagues stepped up. Um, could they have done more? Absolutely. Um, we can always do more. I think we just need to praise the, the first steps that were taken. Um, I, you know, when you, when you mentioned, you know, shut up and dribble, I actually was in, I've been to the Oscars once. Uh, my wife and I went to the Oscars the year Kobe uh, won his Oscar. Uh, and I'm reminded of his acceptance speech uh, when he talked about the fact, well, I guess I can do more than just dribble. Um, and uh, so, no, I think the league should be praised for what they did. Uh, but again, this is a marathon. And so what's the next step? Right. One thing that I'm I'm enjoying the most uh, listening to you speak to us is just your mindset. You know, I see a lot of parallels between the way you think and the way that I try to think or would mm -hmm. say that I like to think. But, you know, one thing that you've been shaped by has been very evident is your grandmother. She's had a huge influence on your life. Is there any other athletes out there maybe growing up or today that have maybe shaped you as well or that you just kind of look up to or admire? Well, I mean, I, I mentioned Kobe. Um, I, I read a lot about Kobe. And in, in fact, you know, I've downloaded some things on, on my phone that I carry with me. That work ethic uh, that he had was, you know, second to none. Um, and, and the drive and the determination. Um, and so he would be one. <clears throat> but there's one that I actually know quite well, and that's Dikembe. Uh, Matombo, 
uh, you know, Dikembe and I, you know, we, we, we talk even now, we, we will talk or text each other periodically, uh, but just watching Dikembe kind of reach across the world um, and, 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 and take the, his fortunes um, that he made in the league and share them with others. And, you know, he just built the, he built the hospital in the Congo um, and he has a nonprofit that, you know, he, he raises money for worthy causes. So just watching Dikembe as an ambassador um, beyond being on the court uh, says he got it. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed uh, with, with him as well. Uh, there are others, obviously, I watch. I don't know them, um, but, um, uh, but, but I do know Dikembe quite well, and I'm, I'm quite impressed with what he's done. Um, but but I, I think the key is how do you take the platform that you have and use it for the, the betterment of, of society? Uh, and so when athletes do that, um, you know, they got my attention um, and, and, and hopefully they'll get society's attention as well. <clears throat> We're so quick to want to bash them in the head when they do something that we don't think they should do, uh, but we're very slow to, to give praise to them uh, when they actually do something that's good for society. Uh, and I, I think that's something we as non-athletes uh, should get better at. So let's shift gears a little bit. And Jesse, if you can go back in time and speak to younger Jesse, mm. what advice would you give him? Uh, younger Jesse, well, two things. Well, three, I think. Uh, one is to don't take unnecessary risk uh, with your life and health. Uh, you only have one life, and once it's gone, it's gone. Um, so during those years when you think you're in, invincible, uh, you're not. Uh, so, so, so adopt a safe and healthy approach to life. Uh, that's one I, I, I would uh, give young Jesse. Uh, I would. The, the other one would be to manage the drama. Uh, there can always be some drama, you know, you, you know uh, I didn't get the job. What did they see in him? Get over it. Uh, whatever they saw, they saw. Uh, and you need to learn from why you didn't get selected. And whatever that, that deficiency was, go close the gap. Uh, don't take yourself out of the game just because you didn't get picked. Um, and, uh, and too, too often, I think you know, young Jesse's might, uh, might fall prey to not managing the drama very well. Um, I think learning the art of grace and humility, uh, is another, because when you're, when you're filling your oaks, sometimes, you know, Hey, you know, you think you're all of that and, um, and you might be today but you may not be tomorrow. And so if, if, you, if you're graceful, then when you're not at the top of your game, people will remember when you were graceful. Um, and I, I think another is um, don't judge your net worth by the logos on your clothing. Um, and because too often at, at a young age, you know, we are more impressed by what we can buy versus what we can save. And, um, and so I used to tell my kids all the time, you know, don't, don't wear all of the assets on their AS 
blank. And, you know, they thought I was nuts when I told them that, but they, I'm less nuts today than I was 20 years ago. Um, and the other is just the last thing I would say is just be confident. Um, you know, if you're given the opportunity, assume they think you can do it um, and get in there and give it everything you have. Um, and if you don't make it, don't tote, don't take yourself out of the game forever. Figure out why you didn't um, and then go back at it and, and figure out how to make it better. Because at the end of the day, you have to demonstrate that you belong at the table. Because I tell the kids, you're either at the table or you're on the menu. Uh, and if you're on the menu, you're going to either get eaten up or passed over. That's some powerful stuff, Jesse. I think that was the podcast right there. <laughs> Those two minutes right there. So yeah, that was really great. I want to tell our listeners too, especially those here that are local to Houston, you are also a patron of the arts. You're the president of the board at the Ensemble Theater, which is a light, a staple in our community. So I preface that by saying, I know that you're going to continue to work with the Ensemble, but what else is next for you? Hmm. What's next for me is, in general, is to continue to carry on the legacy of my grandmother. Um, and, and, and what that means is continue to do the things I can do to reposition my family um, for bigger and better things. Um, we, we, after I retired, uh, well, actually before I retired, I started to delve into entrepreneurial ventures um, and we will continue to pursue that. Um, and, and probably one day, one of my, my children will decide that they may want to become an entrepreneur. And so we will have already uh, laid the framework for them to do so. Um, so, so just doing that and continuing to keep myself in the game. So my brain stays, you know, somewhat, um, exercised, but also realize that, uh, society's problems have not all been solved. Um, while I can't solve them all, there are probably a couple out there that I can assist with. Um, so continuing to, to do that um, is, is, is paramount for me. You know, I, right before I got on this call, I, I, I had to rush back home. I, there's an organization called the Citywide Club of Clubs. They do the Thanksgiving and Christmas feeding every year at the George R. Brown Convention Center. And so I was down there this morning uh, helping them get prepared for their big event tomorrow. Um, but I mean, society's needs are not going to go away tomorrow. Um, and in our worlds, if we stay in this world, we don't physically see some of the things that are, are painful for a lot of people in society. Today, when I went downtown, as I was leaving to come back home, I, I drove through an area where uh, there were hundreds of homeless people under the bridge. Um, and that kind of said to me, we still have a lot of work yet to do. Um, the Dow may be over 30,000, uh, but the food lines are, are longer than they have been in, in years as well. And so there's one end of our society is doing very well. Uh, the other end is doing not so well. And we can't forget uh, those folk in that end of the spectrum as well. Just to wrap this show today, obviously you're retired now and 
not sure exactly what your hobbies consist of, but whatever that is, if it's running or, you know, exercising, what's on your playlist when you're trying to get in the zone? Mm. Well, since COVID-19, I, I will tell you, I've lost 40 pounds. Oh, wow. And I lost it because my wife and I walk every day. We walk, well, she takes Sunday off. I normally still walk on Sunday mornings. But uh, we walk uh, five, six miles a day. And, uh, and I'm, so that's the beginning. I'm trying to change my eating habits a little bit more to complement the walk. Um, but in the process of, of walking, I'm a jazz fan. And so I love to get to listen to some Joe Sample while I'm out walking. Um, it just takes me to a whole nother place. And, um, um, and so, so I'm a sample guy and, and I can, I, you know, I can't walk enough miles to listen to all of the, the music that I have on my phone of, of his, but that's really uh, what, what, uh, what kind of gets me in the right frame of mind and the right spirit to address society once I come back from, from my long walk. Yeah, I'm gonna have to look that up actually. I've never heard of him, so. Yeah, he's good. Give him a spin. Well, this has been great, Jesse. We really appreciate your time and spending time with Yvonne and I. And not only are you gonna inspire people out there, but you've inspired me. Um, just sitting here listening to you being a young man trying to waddle my way through society. Like I, I feel energetic about trying to go out there and continue to push down walls. So really appreciate your, your message today. Yeah, thank you for all that you do, Jesse. And thank you for being you. Well, listen, I want to thank you all as well. I mean, not everybody uh, like the two of you are, are today uh, spending time talking about societal issues. You, know, you could be in the Galleria, you could be uh, shopping online, you could be doing a whole lot of things for yourselves. Um, but you chose to do something for society that's good. And I applaud you for that. And I appreciate you all. Thank you. Retired You're president welcome. and CEO of National Black MBA Associates, Jesse Tyson. Thanks to everyone for tuning in. To the athletes, keep being the best you can be. Run your race with excellence. To the parents of athletes, let's continue to support our children with patience, grace, and understanding, learning to recognize how to truly become the guides and the stewards that we are supposed to be. To everyone, be willing to share your experiences to help others along their paths, and always be open to the wisdom that comes your way. For more information about the 21 Podcast, 21 Media, and services provided by Train Harder 21, visit the website at drewlasker.com and follow us across all social media platforms. Remember to add this podcast to your playlist, subscribe, rate, and review. Until next episode of 21, train harder.